Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, home of the Firebird Book Awards, the Positive Change Podcast Awards, and this podcast, Authors on Fire. I am Pat Rulo. Today, I'm so looking forward to our guest, a Firebird Book Award winning author, Corinne Amon, and her winning book is titled Teenagers Telling a New Story About Aging. And the book won in the Parenting and Family and the Senior Topics categories. Corinne is a recognized gerontologist. With over 20 years of experience working directly with older adults and their families, she is a nationally certified guardian, certified senior advisor, and an advanced professional member of the Aging Life Care Association. She received her PhD from NC State University, where she studied developmental psychology with a specialty in adulthood and aging. The best part here is her home is ruled by four children, five cats, and two dogs. I love that. Welcome to the network, Corinne. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I'm happy that you're here, and that's a lot of activity in your home, right? (laughs) Yeah, uh, there's not a lot of quiet moments with all those teenagers (laughs) and animals. But it's fun and loving. It sounds like a loving home. Oh, sure. Yeah, we have a good time. All right. Well, listen, congratulations on winning the Firebird Book Award. I was happy to share that with you. Oh, thank you so much. I was excited to get that announcement when it came out. It's always a happy day for me. It's one of the best days to put out all that joy into the world. So I'm happy you won. All right. Well, before we get into the inside of the book, let's talk about the title, Teenagers. Where and how did that come from? Sure. And just for your listeners, I want to make sure they know that it's keen, like with a K, because it sounds so much like teenagers, teenagers. Mm-hmm. but it's not. Um, it's teenagers, K-E-E-N. And um, the title actually comes from, I was trying to figure out what do we or what could we call our older adults that we have today that are not your stereotypical older adults. I think we have these kinds of biases about or expectations about what older adulthood is going to be. And yet we have a very large generation of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond even who don't fit those stereotypes at all. And yet we don't have good words for them. We don't have any way to talk about them as a group. And so I was trying to write about them, and I didn't have a word. I didn't have a word to use that would reflect that group other than older adult or senior, and and I thought, we can't keep using these same words because those evoke kind of the same stereotypes that we've always had. And um, a friend of mine, whereas we were sitting around debating this, she was trying to kind of help me think of the words, and we, we couldn't come up with anything. But she went home and talked to her mom, and her mom said, oh, we call ourselves teenagers. Mm. And that, uh, so I, I looked up the word after she said that, and it's not something I created, obviously. It's a word that a lot of people in this group use. There seems to be a lot of use for it, particularly with, like, church groups for people in this 
age range, um, so kind of your young, active, older adult seniors. Um, and so she, you know, told us that's what she called, what they called themselves, and she really liked it. I mean, she said it was a lot of enthusiasm, and I thought, you know, I, I like the word because it, it's fun, it's kind of playful, you know, it's a take on teenager, but it's positive in a way that I think the other words we have for older adults aren't, um, or, and fun in a way that some of these other words aren't. And so that's why I chose it. I love that. And I, you know, the word keen is such a, as you say, it's such a fun word, but it's not a word that's often used. And yet it has such, such a meaning, you know, when you think of a keen sense of humor, I mean, that's quite a compliment. So really anything that's keen is moving in that positive direction. So Couple that with the play on words of teenagers. I think it's just got so much going for it. And I hope that uh, people pick it up and stop using the word seniors and older adults. I agree with you. I've written some health-related books. And when I get to that, I'm stumped because I don't like writing older people, older adults. Who is that? You know, who is it? How old is old? And what group is that? It's it's interesting. Well, and, and you bring up a really good point, which is part of the reason I, you know, was writing the book is it's like we group everyone basically 60 or 65 and older as, quote, older adults. And that, so that, you know, you're putting people who are 65 in the same age group, the same category as people who are 95. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, there is no other time in life where we would try to say that people that far apart in age are the same or are in the same um, cohort or the same, you know, group. And as we have started to live longer, as our lifespans have gotten longer, we have not come up with new designations for people as they grow older. We just kind of group them all together and say older adults. And, and that's kind of my point is that that's a little bit ridiculous because a 65-year-old is clearly not the same as a 95-year-old. Mm-hmm. And we need to have different words so that we can distinguish that. Absolutely. Well, this seems like the time in society where it should take hold. I hope so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your work as a gerontologist for over 20 years, 20 years is a long time to see all the differences and the transformation in society and how they treat older people or how older people feel or teenagers feel about themselves. You've been there for that ride. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of the reason I wanted to write the book, too, is because, you know, I am in this field. And yet I also have realized my own biases or my own assumptions about older adults and growing older. So when I first started working in this field, um, especially in my work as a care manager, I really thought I was going to be working with like 45-year-old adult children trying to care for their 75-year-old older adult parents. And what I found is that I'm working with 75-year-old adult children who are caring for their 95-year-old parents. And so that, I was wrong. I mean, I'm an an expert in this field, 
And when I first started in it, despite all my schooling and, and all the things I thought I knew, I really had very incorrect assumptions about who I was going to be working with and who was going to be the older adult. Uh, and so if I had all this background in the field and had these misconceptions, then everybody else who's not in this field definitely has these misconceptions. They're not thinking about older adulthood today the way it really exists. We're thinking about it based on the stereotypes or the expectations of previous generations. Mm -hmm. And so getting into writing the book, that's part of my point is we are thinking about this all wrong because what used to be true for your grandparents is not what's true for people as they grow older today. Absolutely. And Corinne, where my viewpoints changed is when I had to take care of my mom. I took care of her from her age, 78 to 86. And so many interesting things um, I noticed just caring for her and how people reacted to her. It changed my whole thought process on growing older. For example, she had a a disability where she couldn't walk long distances. So on occasion, I would pop her in a wheelchair and we would go about our business in a wheelchair. And it was so funny. People would approach her and talk loudly as if she were deaf. Hi there. How are you today? Mom would look at him. She goes, I'm in a wheelchair. I'm not deaf. So it was right. It was things like that that thought, I thought, oh my, I probably would have done the same thing in the past too. How you just kind of lump all of those stereotypical expectations onto an individual where they really don't belong. Right. And that particular thing that you're mentioning, that is something called elder speak. Ah. Uh, and it's when we talk to older adults as if they are children, mm -hmm. right? That kind of high pitch. The same way we would talk to a baby, right? How are you today, sweetheart? Uh -huh. Are you doing good? You're looking great. You know, those sorts of <laughs> intonations in our voice. And we mean it in a positive way. Like we're trying yes. to be kind. We're trying to make sure they can hear us and they can understand us. And we're trying to be positive. But older adults hate that. They <laughs> really hate it. And yeah, they have that kind of reaction your mom had where it's, like, I'm not an imbecile just because I'm in a wheelchair or I'm using a cane or I've grown older. Like, talk to me like I'm an adult because I am an adult. Right. Well, I love that. She was sharp as a whip and she would get so mad when people did that. So uh, I learned a lot during those years on how not to be and you know, grew up there. So um, what are some of the prevailing narratives and what are the fresh perspectives that challenge those outdated thoughts that you included in your book? The prevailing narrative would be just our kind of stereotypical thoughts about growing older, right? That it's all downhill, that it's, you're going to slow down inevitably, that you're going to have aches and pains and that's normal, that you're going to be depressed and that's normal, that you ought to retire or you ought to want to retire and that's normal. These sorts of just traditional things we've thought about growing older. And the actual 
story is much more positive. So I'll take the depression example. We have this stereotype that older adults ought to be depressed, right? Because you have all these aches and pains and things are going downhill, that sort of thing. There's actually quite a bit of research um, on happiness throughout the lifespan. And one of the things you see is that there's something called the U-curve of happiness. And the U-curve of happiness is data that says, This is self-reported happiness. People are surveyed. They're asked about their happiness. And young adults report high levels of happiness. And then when we get into middle adulthood and we're, you know, working a job and we're raising our kids and we've got a lot going on, we tend to report less happiness. And then older adults report some of the highest levels of happiness at any point in the lifespan. So it is completely not normal to be depressed as you move into older adulthood. And that stereotype about it being normal to be depressed leads to doctors ignoring uh, people's reported symptoms. It keeps people from getting treatment when they actually do have clinical depression because people just kind of write it off as a normal, quote, normal part of aging when it's really not at all. And the idea that we're going to inevitably want to retire, right? Or that you should want to retire. And, you know, if you have a job that you hate, sure, absolutely, retire, get out of that job. But if you have a job that you love, there's not necessarily any particular reason that you should retire. And, in fact, the research on retirement shows that if people retire and do not figure out how to have purpose in their life doesn't mean you have to keep working, but something that gives you purpose on a Wednesday morning to make you want to get out of bed. If you don't have that, about 18 months to two years after retirement, people start to go downhill. Their health starts to decline. They are more socially isolated. Uh, There's a lot of negative outcomes from retirement if you cannot find purpose. So the the narrative should not be let's retire and do nothing, right? I'm just going to sit around and watch TV or play golf or whatever it is. The narrative should be I'm going to retire from my first career and then I'm going to figure out what I'm what's going to give me purpose in this it's often called like an encore career or an encore stage, you know, after I retire Am I going to start a new business? Am I going to volunteer? Am I going to, you know, whatever it is, but something that makes you want to get out of bed, not just have nothing to do. I think we we put up on a pedestal this idea of unlimited free time. I'm just going to have nothing to do, and I'll have total control over my schedule, and that's great, except um, vacations are only fun because they end, right? If it's yeah. unlimited vacation, nothing to ever do, that actually gets pretty boring pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And and you want everyone wants purpose. Everyone wants to feel valued by other people and by society. And we don't tend to feel very valued um, or purposeful if we aren't doing anything that gives back 
uh, or create something in the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. The U curve of happiness. See, when you first said that, I thought I, I knew what you were going to say because it seems like it just makes sense that, as you say, when you're in your 40s or 50s and you're working and raising a family, yeah, there might be a slump. But once you grow up, there's so much realization that happens as you get older that you start to figure things out and things make sense. I would understand that the, obviously the level of happiness would go up and the lack mm-hmm. of so much responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You said the word healthcare and made me think about what you're finding in healthcare, healthcare providers and teenagers, older older adults, are you still working under the old narratives? Yeah, there's a lot of ageism in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And just for your listeners, if they're not really familiar with ageism, because it's, I find actually that a lot of people are not, um, ageism is being biased against someone um, based on their age alone, right? Like just making judgments about people based on their age. And it can apply to young adults. It can apply to anybody at any age. But we see it the most with older adults. And so in the healthcare setting, you see a lot of the elder speak that we mentioned earlier, where healthcare providers are speaking to the older adult or the teenager as though they are a child or they can't understand. They also do things like if the adult child goes with their parents to an appointment rather than speak to the older adult themselves, the healthcare provider speaks to the adult child, even though the parent is perfectly capable of speaking for themselves, you know, and understanding what the doctor is saying, that kind of thing. And then the other way we see ageism in healthcare is lack of taking an older adult healthcare issue seriously, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you've got one you've got a knee that hurts and the doctor says something like, Well, you're getting older, so we can expect that you're gonna have some aches and pains and, you know, your response to that, of course, is, but shouldn't we investigate why it's hurting? <laughs> But healthcare providers tend to just kind of write things off to age rather than investigating what's actually happening. You also see this just in kind of the way our insurance systems are set up. Like once a person gets to the age of 70, um, Medicare really doesn't pay for screening anymore. So kind of these basic you know, mammograms, things that we think about having as our annual screenings, you get to a certain age and your health insurance says, no, we don't do that anymore. We don't, we don't have to screen you anymore, which of course makes the individual say, what do you mean? Aren't, aren't I worth (laughs) screening and keeping around? And wouldn't you rather catch my cancer early so that it can be treated quickly and easily rather than paying millions of dollars later for that treatment? But we don't. We we have these age cutoffs where we say, well, nope. And and it doesn't take into account the individual exactly. at all. That's yeah. that's the thing about ageism in general. It doesn't look at the person. It's only looking at a number. Mm-hmm. And you know, your age. If you've met one seventy-year-old, you've met one seventy-year-old because 
they are all different. They are all unique. They are all going to have unique problems and um, things that are going well for them. And we have to take that into account rather than just saying, oh, well, you know, here's this number. So this number is telling me that I don't need to investigate your knee pain or I don't need to take your um, depression seriously. You know, whatever it is, we cannot just look at the number. We have to look at that individual and assess them not just their age. Oh, this is such an important conversation. Um, I come from the patient advocacy world. And again, with my mom, I went to every single doctor visit with, with her. And nine times out of 10, we'd get in there and they would look at me and speak to me. And I, knowing better, I would just say, my mom can answer those questions. I'm just here to be the eyes and ears. And you know, if, if she, doesn't remember something or if we need clarification, you know, then you could look to me. But I would always have to speak that to the provider and say, please talk to my mom because it's her, it's her body, it's her diagnosis, and it's your relationship with her. So I want to encourage people as, as they're listening to this, if you're taking somebody else to, to a doctor's appointment, and it doesn't even have to be a teenager or an older person, well, let that person speak unless, of course, they falter and, and have issues and are maybe giving misinformation, and then you could clarify. I just think it's so important um, for the patient, for, you know, for the person. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to um, disparage healthcare workers uh, in their roles. We are all biased. We are in such a ageist culture that is, you know, very youth-obsessed. We are fed these negative messages uh, or these biases about aging from a very young age, it is very difficult to overcome because it's just kind of built into our society. So the first step is just realizing, you know, kind of taking a step back and realizing that we think this way and that, oh, wait, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should question these automatic thoughts that I have about somebody being too old for something or not needing treatment because of their age, you know, just stopping ourselves to question it is the first step to trying to get to a point where maybe we would have a world without ageism, which, you know, is the, is the big goal, of course, but, you know, we, at an individual level, we just have to, each one of us start questioning, well, why do I, why do I think that way? My, um, I'll tell you a quick story. I took my daughter to the Bruce Springsteen concert, uh, this year. And at the end of the concert, Bruce, you know, rips open his shirt. You know, he's in his seventies. He rips open his shirt. He's playing his guitar and he's in very good shape for a 70 year old, uh, 70 something. And when we got in the car to go home, my daughter, who was 12 at the time said, he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have ripped his shirt open at the end of that show like that. And I said, why not? He goes, she goes, because he's a dirty old man. <laughs> and I kind of went, what, why do you, why do you think that? And she said, well, he's, he's old. And I said, yes. And, and she, and she, and of course she has no, that's just what the world has told yep. her, right? Mm-hmm. That like, old men are dirty in some way and they should keep their shirts on, right? Like that is what the world has told her. And of course my husband was like, well, he's in better shape at 70 than I am in my 40s. So, you know, 
he can he can do that if he wants. But my point is, she is twelve. Yes, she hasn't been around a ton of old men mm-hmm. other than her grandfather, things like that, and she has gotten the message yep. already from our society that no matter what kind of shape you're in, no matter who you are, you're a dirty old man and you should keep your clothes on all the time. <laughs> and, and in some contexts, that's probably true. But it, it's that messaging yes. that we've all been fed and that we have to stop and question about why do I even think that? Mm-hmm. And is it in any way a useful thing to be thinking? Because the only way we will change the way you and I are going to be treated as we grow older is by changing how we think about it and how everyone around us is thinking about it. Because if you don't like how older adults are treated now, this is something that if you live long enough is going to impact you. Mm -hmm. You know, ageism is a, a unique thing in that it's a bias that people have and we tend to think oh you know we have these biases because they're true which is of course false but it's one of it's a bias that if you live long enough one day you're going to wake up and go wait a minute now all these people think that applies to me and you're not going to like that when that day comes I'm so happy we had this conversation. We landed in different places that we probably didn't think we were going to go. But thank you. Thank you. So is there anything we missed as far as something you wanted to highlight from your book today? Um, No, I don't think so. I think we, like you said, we kind of went over a lot of different Mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, You know, I think if, if readers are looking for a way to look forward to growing older and to reshape how they view aging, you know, that's, that's my goal. That's the goal of the book is to kind of say, here's where we are and here's where we all ought to want to go. And, you know, it's a group effort. And my, my book is designed to help everybody who reads it take a step in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yes. I would encourage younger people or anyone who maybe even has teenager uh, family members to read it because it's very eye-opening and we might as well start earlier rather than later. So it's really an excellent book for all ages. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I think so. What's next? Any more books on the horizon? Um, Well, the thing that several people have said to me after reading it is, this was great. I'm in. But now they want like a workbook or a how-to or a here's the next step sort of thing. And um, that may be on the horizon. Um, you know, we'll see because that seems, that seems to be a want. Uh, I have not started working on that yet. <laughs> yeah. One thing at a time. Yes, get this one out, get it marketed. But that seems like it might be mm-hmm. a natural progression and then it could be used within groups and there's probably a exactly. lot of a lot of application for something like that. Oh, well take a little breather, how's that? And then think about it. See what happens. Alrighty. Well, if you would then share any and all contact information where folks can get a hold of you and get copies of your book. Sure. So the book is on Amazon and um, actually you can get it anywhere books are sold. 
Um, you can request your local bookstore to bring it in. Um, you can order it off like the Barnes & Noble website, places like that. Um, my contact information, if anyone wanted to email me, my email is corinne at uh, navigateseniorcare.com. That's C-O-R-I-N-N-E at navigateseniorcare.com. And then I have all the typical social media accounts, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and I'm just Corinne Almond uh, on those accounts as well. So just do a search for my name. You should be able to find me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. So we're speaking with Firebird Book Award winning author, Corinne Almond. Book is titled Teenagers with a K. Keen. Teenagers telling a new story about aging. And while well, we just danced around a few of the topics here, so there's a lot more in this book. And I just suggest everybody get a copy and share it around. So it'd be great for book clubs and library groups, senior groups, teenager groups, I should say. Appropriate <laughs> for all. Corinne, thank you. Thank you for entering the Firebird Book Awards. I'm happy you won, and thank you for this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me.